what we're doing today is we're talking about a church in crisis. A church in crisis. And you may say, well, the church, frankly, always seems to be in some sort of crisis. And there's a level of which that is so often our experience. Whether it be the challenges posed by particular views of the spirit, whether it be questions over how we are justified by God in his sight, the church is always facing particular challenges. I think uh, even in my own church, I happen to go to an Anglican church on a weekend with my family, and within the worldwide Anglican church, there are all sorts of crises at the moment to do with uh, what sort of sexuality is appropriate for those who are ministers within God's church, or even bishops as we have in the Anglican church, within God's church. There are all sorts of crises Today I want to take you back to the very first big crisis in the church. In some ways, you know, we're stepping way, way back in time, nearly 2,000 years. But I want to say this particular crisis has a significant impact on how you live as a Christian every day. If this crisis had been resolved with a different outcome, your Christian life would look very, very different. You may not have ever realised that a lot, you know, that, that the way you live the Christian life now actually hinges on decisions that were made 2,000 years ago by a bunch of Christians uh, meeting together in Jerusalem to resolve this particular dispute and crisis. But it has a massive impact on what it means to live the Christian life as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why this is an important crisis to look at because it's actually set the course not just for the rest of the book of Acts that we've been looking at uh, on and off through the year here at the EU, but it actually has had ramifications throughout 2,000 years of church history and has ramifications on a daily basis for your Christian life. So that's why it's important to look at. If you've got your Bible there, you might like to open to Acts chapter 15. Uh, If you haven't got a Bible, you might like to look on with the person next to you. That will certainly help. Let me read to you the first seven and, well, six and a bit verses from Acts chapter 15 to sort of set the stage for this crisis in the early church. I'm reading from Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Certain certain individuals came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders meant to discuss this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Here is a critical crisis in the Christian church. Notice there, just as I read out those verses, there was much heated or vigorous discussion. 
verse 2, when these believers, Christian brothers, come from Jerusalem down to the church in Antioch, and they say, you must be circumcised according to the custom of Moses to be saved, Paul and Barnabas, we're told there, end up in sharp dispute and debate with them. This wasn't just a little nice theological conversation over port and cigars. This was a sharp theological debate. And clearly, it wasn't resolved there in Antioch. In fact, the church in Antioch, was, it seems, wasn't sure what to do, and they wanted clarification. So they sent a delegation to headquarters, back to sort of where the Christian church had started from, namely the church in Jerusalem, where many of the apostles, well, those who hadn't already been killed for their faith in the Lord Jesus, where the apostles and sort of the elders of the Jerusalem church still were. And so they sent a delegation, including Paul and Barnabas, off to get um, a resolution to this divisive issue. But notice, it wasn't clearly resolved even in Jerusalem. Because when they rolled up in Jerusalem, yes, they were welcomed as um, Paul and Barnabas, as fellow workers and uh, members of the body of Christ. But as they explained all the things that God had done through them, namely that many Gentiles are coming to faith and being saved, some of the Christians there in Jerusalem were quite concerned. Christians who belonged to the particular party of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees uh, was a a group originally within Judaism who were very concerned for purity. The Pharisees could see that uh, things weren't uh, as God had said they would be in the nation of Israel. They were still looking for the great promises of God to come true when Jerusalem would be sort of fully restored and Israel would have sovereignty again under God as king. Because at the moment the Romans had overrun Jerusalem and Israel and they, they could see that things weren't as they were meant to be. And so how are you to be God's people in this situation? The Pharisees said, you do it by just keeping the Torah, keeping the Old Testament law. That's how you mark yourself out as a pure people of God, especially in this situation where we don't have all the promises of God yet come true. And these particular Pharisees now believe that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus who'd come, been crucified and raised again. They say, yes, God has sent his Messiah. They had, they had a real trust, like you, I trust, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But they were still committed to keeping the Old Testament Torah as a mark of purity because God's people are to be a pure people, God's saved people. And so they say, these Gentiles who are coming to faith, look, the Gentiles have to submit to the law of Moses. But there's discussion in the Jerusalem church. It's not clear. It's not an obvious answer. And we read there, beginning verse 7, it said, after much discussion, then Peter gets up. So this was a big crisis in the Christian church. It was going to have lots of implications for carrying out Jesus' mission. What was Jesus' mission, given the beginning of the book of Acts? That you, talking to the uh, apostles, you will be my chosen witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. So they've got a task to do, given by the Lord Jesus, to continue his mission, to bring in the kingdom of God. But what that was going to look like as they proclaimed Jesus to all the nations, that was, a, that was, a, that was the question. Do these people need to follow the Old Testament law or not? So let's think a little bit more deeply about the issue because it bears some thinking. First of all, this is my summary then of the issue that was at stake. The understanding was that God saved people are to be pure. God saved people are to be pure. That wasn't in question. Everyone agreed with that. God saved people are to be pure. Secondly, sort of the flip side of that, 
if you've got no purity, then you certainly can't belong to the saved people of God. With no purity, you don't belong to the saved people of God. You can even see this in Israel's history. Because tragically, as a nation, Israel had wandered away from God's laws time and time again. When they, and when they had done that, when they'd been disobedient to God's laws, when they had, hadn't shown the purity that God wanted of them, what had happened? They had suffered God's judgment. They'd been sent out into exile. So without purity, if you have no purity, then there's no belonging to the saved people of God. So the question then was, what should purity look like for these Gentiles who believe in Jesus? If they're to be part of the saved people of God, they're going to need to be pure people. What was purity to look like for these Gentiles who are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus? Now, it's very easy to somehow dismiss the point of view that's put forward in this uh, event by the Christians who were from the Pharisee party. These days, we might go, oh, I don't get that. I mean, who possibly in their right mind would think that Christians need to be circumcised or to submit to the law of Moses? Who possibly would ever think that? Well, I just want to think for a moment, just say, this was not a straightforward question. They had a lot of good biblical basis for what they were saying. Let me uh, just give you one particular reference that I found helpful in this. Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7 to 8. You might like to jot that down. Leviticus 20, verses 7 to 8. Let me read it out to you. Here God is saying to his people, Consecrate yourselves. Consecrate yourselves, that is, make yourselves holy, set yourselves apart as special to me, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And then it's that the holiness that God expects of his people is given a particular shape. I'll read on. Keep my statutes and observe them. I am the Lord, I sanctify you. God sets apart these people. He saves them, yes, out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai. They receive the, the blessing of the covenant and they receive the law. How are they to mark themselves out as set apart by God? By keeping his laws, observing his statutes. That's how to mark themselves out as the saved, pure people of God. So you can sort of see why the Christians here in Jerusalem at this particular time are saying, how are you going to mark yourself out as the saved, pure people of God if you're just going to completely ignore what God has given in the Old Testament? The laws that he's given which uh, articulate for us to give us the shape of what purity looks like. So, if this is the question, what were some of the options for the answers? Well, what I want to try to do is outline for you the way I think the Bible shapes the, the, the means and shape of salvation. This is how I think the Bible portrays the means and shape of salvation. What did salvation look like pre-Jesus? Well, this is my summary. God's people, so the Old Testament nation of Israel, God's people are saved by grace through faith in the one true living God. That is, God's people were saved by grace because God didn't choose the nation of Israel because of anything good that they had done. It was a purely an election by grace. It is through faith in the one true living God, this one true living God who had promised to send his Messiah, for whom they were still waiting, but this faith in the one true living God was expressed through fidelity to the Mosaic covenant, the covenant established at Mount Sinai through Moses. What does fidelity to that covenant look like? Well, it looked like obedience to Torah, to the first five books of the Bible, obedience to the Old Testament law. 
I take it that that was the shape of salvation. It wasn't a salvation purely by works. No, it was always saved by grace through faith in the living true God. But what did that faith look like? It looked like love and obedience. Love and obedience. Keeping the covenant, being faithful to it, which meant obedience to his laws. How does that change with Jesus? What does that look like post-Jesus? Well, I'm going to suggest to you a lot of it looks remarkably the same. This is my summary. God's people, post-Jesus, are saved by grace through faith in the one true living God who has now sent his promised Messiah, so that's different, and this faith in the one true living God who's now sent his promised Messiah is expressed through fidelity to what? It's expressed, this living faith is expressed in obedience to what? This was their question. How do you fill in the blanks in this statement? This is what was being debated. Some of the Christians were saying it's expressed through fidelity to the, to the Mosaic covenant, expressed through obedience to God's Torah. Paul and Barnabas, we're not told exactly what Paul and Barnabas were saying, but Paul and Barnabas have a big issue with that. They want to fill in the blanks differently. So this is what they needed to resolve. So let's move on and look at the resolution. First of all, um, the first way it's resolved is, as we saw there in verse 7, Peter gets up to speak. Here's Peter coming in. <laughs> that indeed is what he looked like. Okay, that's not true because I don't think they had microphones. Um, anyway. So, let's read from verse 7. Let's see how this gets resolved. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Okay, quick quiz for those who have actually read the book of Acts or been here during the year. To what is he referring? Some time ago God made a choice among us that it was through me that the Gentiles would hear the gospel of Jesus and believe. To what event is he referring? It's a massive event in the book of Acts. It takes up two whole chapters. You get it narrated once and then Peter tells the whole story again. And here it is the third time. It's a really big event. It's what? It is, of course. Pentecost is a big event, but no, that's not it. That's not where the Gentiles believe. Cornelius, thank you, right? Acts chapters 10 and 11. This was the breakthrough moment. The breakthrough moment in Acts chapters 10 and 11 when prompted entirely, as you'll remember from that talk, entirely prompted by the Holy Spirit um, who has to sort of align everything. He has to sort of a vision to Cornelius, a vision to Peter, tell Peter, go down and walk with these guys. God has to bring it all together and that is where, for the first time, a Gentile hears the good news of Jesus and even as Peter is speaking the good news to him, you sort of think that Peter doesn't really know why, well, he doesn't even know why he's there, if you read it. He says, well, I'll tell you about Jesus. Before he's even finished, the Holy Spirit comes on Cornelius and his family and they start speaking in tongues, which was convenient, right? Because when the Holy Spirit comes with that particular gift, it's very obvious that, oh, the Holy Spirit has come. And so Peter could see, oh, you've got, you must have the Spirit because you're speaking in tongues, which is exactly what happened to us at Pentecost. It's the great breakthrough moment where suddenly the Gentiles have the Spirit of God. 
That is a massive deal. Because if they've got the Spirit of God, that means they belong to the people of God. The Gentiles have never belonged to the people of God. The only way the Gentiles could belong to the people of God was by stop being a Gentile and becoming a Jew. But Cornelius was God's breakthrough moment where in great grace, suddenly a Gentile and his family come into the saved people of God. Not by becoming a Jew, but by hearing the gospel of Jesus and believing. Now this is what Peter's talking about because this was the breakthrough moment and he's bringing that to bear into this particular discussion. He's going to reflect theologically upon what happened. So let's have a look there. I'm now up to verse 8 where he starts to reflect. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them. That is a massive statement. God didn't discriminate between the Gentile and the Jew. That was the most fundamental distinction that existed in the Jewish framework. God did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Notice here the question is coming up about purity, which is what I was trying to say to you. That's what the Pharisees were concerned about. The Pharisees knew they needed to be pure. That's how God saved people are to live, as the pure people of God. For them, it was obedience to Torah. Peter's talking about purity. He's addressing the issue. But notice some of the other key words there, things like the Holy Spirit. What's going on here? What, what, how is Peter reflecting theologically? I want to suggest to you that a key passage here for understanding what Peter's uh, saying here is Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 29. You might like to turn it up. Let's go there now. Ezekiel 36. If you've been here throughout this series, this is becoming a bit standard practice, isn't it? We try to read a bit of Acts, we try to understand and go, oh, the answer here is we've got to know our Old Testament. Well, yep, that's right. That's what we're trying to do, is go deeper into God's Word, understand the connections, so we understand what God has to tell us. Ezekiel 36, look at verse 25 to 29. You should know what this passage is about before I even read it, right? This is just, I don't know, if you had to pick your top random number chosen here, uh, top seven Old Testament passages that are going to form your framework for understanding God and his world and how he relates to us and what he's done in Jesus, if you're going to pick seven, this would have to be in there. Have to be. Right? Absolutely. Maybe even in top three. Oh, I, I reckon. I was actually going to say two. But anyway, I, it's, this is right up there. Okay? Absolutely critical. So you should know this passage and know what's in it. Let me read to you. The Lord is speaking to his people through the prophet Ezekiel. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. What was the issue we've said going on in Acts 15? The issue is about purity, cleanliness. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. What did Peter talk about? Purifying their hearts is what God has done. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. What's he just related? God gave the spirit to Cornelius. You see all the echoes here. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people. 
I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. This is one of the great New Covenant passages. This is why it's got to be in your top seven, because this is where God addresses, God promises to address the big issue throughout the whole Old Testament. The big issue from Genesis chapter 3 onwards is the problem of sin. Sin that means that God's people, the nation of Israel, despite graciously being saved out of slavery in Egypt, graciously having God reveal himself to them at Mount Sinai, graciously being made covenant partners with God and recipients of all these great promises, despite all these wonderful things, Israel never as a nation, individuals did, but as a nation they never kept God's law. Why? Because they had a heart problem, the problem of sin. And so what God promises to do here in Ezekiel 36 is resolve that fundamental problem. This is the solution to Genesis 3. That's why it's got to be in your top seven. And he's looking forward and saying, the day is going to come when I, will, when I will purify your hearts. I'll take out your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. It's going to be through my spirit. This was the great longed for hope, the new covenant. And I think what Peter is saying is, all that we hoped for in the new covenant, we have seen God do, not just to us, but seen God do it even to the Gentiles when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. That God has given them the Spirit, which means they are members of the new covenant, which means God has taken out their heart of stone and given them a heart of flesh. He's put his Spirit within them. They have been cleansed. They have been purified. So this is what Peter's saying. We are now post-Jesus in the new covenant era. And God has brought the Gentiles by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus into this new covenant situation. And then he applies it. If you flip back then to Acts chapter 15, he applies his theological reflection in verse 10. Now then, he says, having established these facts, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. Now I want you to slow down and actually read this verse 10 carefully and think about what might it actually mean. He's applying what he said. He says, now why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? What was this unbearable yoke? This unbearable yoke that Peter says, we as the nation of Israel, we nor our ancestors have been able to bear this yoke. What is it? Your initial thought might be, oh, the unbearable yoke is having to follow the law. That's the problem. They had to follow the law and had to follow it perfectly and that was an unbearable yoke. I don't actually think that's what Peter's saying. The reason is this. I don't think what he's saying is the unbearable yoke is following the law because if no Christians were following the law, there never would have been this initial crisis anyway. The whole reason there was a crisis was because it seems that in the church in Jerusalem, the Christians there, who were mainly from a Jewish background, they were choosing to follow the Old Testament law, even though they had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But they were continuing, I assume, to go to the temple. They were continuing to follow the laws of purity in the Old Testament. That's fine. 
That's not a problem. You can choose to do that. Never replace faith in Jesus with that. That's a tragedy. That's terrible. But no, they had faith in Jesus and they were electing to continue to follow the Jewish laws. Most of them had come out of a Jewish background. That's why the whole debate had arisen in the first place. Because when some of them had gone down to Antioch and seen these Gentiles who weren't following, they were going, what are you doing? And when they brought the issue back to Jerusalem, there's debate. Why? Because most of Jerusalem, I assume the Jerusalem church, kept the Old Testament law. So I don't think he's saying, oh, well, following the law, that's too hard for us. Like that. They were doing that, probably. It seems that that's what they were doing. Maybe it was they weren't following it perfectly. Well, no one's ever followed the law perfectly. God knew that Israel would never be able to follow the law perfectly. That's why there are whole means of atonement in the Old Testament. I actually think the unbearable yoke is the attempt to be pure without having your heart changed. The unbearable yoke is this attempt to be pure by external observance. And what he's saying is reflecting on the history of Israel and saying, you know, we had the law and even when we kept the law, we kept failing and even when we made atonement using the atonement provision of the old... It still didn't fix the problem because the root problem for Genesis 3 was in the human heart. The root problem was sin. And we were never able to achieve that level of purity that really God wanted. The inner purity. The deep inner purity. Because you can't do that through external observance. You need something done in your heart. That sort of yoke, we nor our ancestors have been able to bear that required the inner work of God which was the great grace of God that came through the Lord Jesus Christ that is what the Lord Jesus did is he made it possible for you to be pure before God in his own death Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us after Jesus had made purification for sin he was seated at the right hand of the Father that is where did Jesus make purification for sin in his death by he made purification by his blood so God did the objective, external work of purification that you needed, the great sacrifice to make you pure. But he's also done the internal, personal work in you so that what Jesus did counts for you because by faith, through the Spirit, you have now been united to Christ such that when he died to sin, you died to sin. So you see, it's both the external work of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the personal subjective, if you like, because it's about you as a subject, the personal work of God in you by the Spirit that joins you by faith to Christ. This is how God has created purity. This is the great grace of the, that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he can conclude there in verse 11, as I read out, he says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. So, here's Peter's big point. It is through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, this grace of the new covenant that has been established, that we are made pure, not through external observances. Now, very interestingly, after this, the next verse, verse 12, Barnabas and Paul get a look in, sent up from the church in Antioch. They get one sentence, which is sort of interesting, right, because a lot of the book of Acts, especially from this point on, is all about uh, Paul as a great apostle to the Gentiles. But they only get one sentence here, which is worth reading. Why they only get one sentence? What, do, what do actually happens? Verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Then going on. When they finished, James stood up 
spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simeon, or Simon it might say in yours, which he means Peter, and he goes back to what Peter said. It's like he just bypasses Barnabas and Saul entirely. Gives you the sense that Barnabas and Paul here really are a bit of a sideshow. They're not the the big contributors to this debate. The big figures are Peter and James, who are the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. How does Barnabas and Saul fit in, though? Notice here, what did Barnabas and Saul relate? They relate the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. How is that relevant to what Peter's just said? Because I want to suggest to you that when Paul and Barnabas fly in, they are pointing out, they are pointing out the great grace that God has been extending to the Gentiles. Key verse here is chapter 14, verse 3. Whenever anyone asks you, look, I don't get all these miracles that happen in the book of Acts, these signs and wonders, what's all this about? Can I suggest to you that Acts chapter 14, verse 3 is a really helpful place to go? Let me read to you. uh, We saw it last week. It was when Barnabas and Paul were in Iconium, which was the regular sort of pattern of their mission. Verse 3 of chapter 14. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. As they, as God's chosen um, authoritative witnesses, those who've seen the Lord Jesus risen and been commissioned by him to be his authoritative witnesses, as Paul was, as they proclaim boldly the word of the Lord, God testifies to the authenticity of their apostolic message by granting signs and wonders to be done. And uh, another reference you might like to look up later is 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, which, uh, where Paul talks about signs and wonders as the um, marks of a true apostle. God testifies to this authoritative apostolic word about Jesus through signs and wonders. But in particular, notice the word that's common to both passages, Acts 14 and Acts 15, was grace. God testified to the word of his grace. And what's Peter just been talking about? No, we know that we are saved just as they are through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul and Moses go, yeah, that's right. Because let us, I'll tell you about that, that grace. As we've proclaimed this grace, God has done all these signs and wonders. So you say, yes, God has been bringing in the great uh, promise of purity, of salvation through the Lord Jesus, even to these Gentiles. But then we come to the second main person, and that is James. Um, James is carrying a load of books for a reason. Because what James does, what he contributes to this uh, discussion, this resolution, is James identifies that what Peter has talked about, referring back to Cornelius, and what Paul and Barnabas have testified to happening many, many, many more times than just with Cornelius, James says, yes, actually, when we reflect on the scriptures, hence the books, when we reflect on the scriptures, we see that this has always been God's plan. He confirms that this is the plan of God. He does it by quoting Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. Anyway, let me read out what James says. We're at verse 13 of Acts 15. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simeon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. Here he quotes Amos 9. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. 
its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, these things from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, I just want to point out something about his quotation of Amos chapter 9. You'll notice at least two stages here. I'm going to suggest that maybe there's three. At least two stages to God's plan. First of all, verse 16, God is going to come and rebuild David's fallen tent. Now, David wasn't a bad tent putter-upper, right? And that God needed to rebuild his tent. What's he talking about? He's saying, no, God had made a promise. Another one of those Old Testament passages you really need to know, top 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Anyway, God had made a promise that he was going to have someone from David's family on the throne forever. This would be the Messiah. And what Amos 9 is, uh, in Amos 9, God is saying, I will come and I rebuild David's form 10. I will put one of his descendants, I'll put my Messiah on the Davidic throne. So that's the first thing. Second thing, he says there, that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. The second phase here is that all the Gentiles would actually come and join God's saved people. All the Gentiles who bear God's name. So there's at least two phases here and you can see how that's relevant, right? Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection, has been enthroned as Christ and Lord. So yeah, there's the first part ticked off. And now, as we've heard from Peter and from Paul and Barnabas, the Gentiles are coming to faith. That's the second part of the plan. I want to suggest to you though, it may actually be three stages. It all depends on how you translate the first part of verse 17, that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Uh, If you've got an older version, um, like a King James or an ASV, it actually says, if I read it, that the residue of men, the residue of men, which sounds a bit like a really bad, wacky chemistry experiment, (laughs) the residue of men, I'm thinking of body parts, but anyway... um, That word residue may be referring to, I suggest, the remnant, the faithful remnant amongst the Israelites. See, Israel as a nation had wandered far, far from the Lord, so far that they killed God's son. That's how far they wandered as a nation. However, there were always righteous, faithful Israelites who loved the Lord and sought to obey him by fidelity to the Old Testament covenant. And it may be here that what he's saying is there's actually three phases. God will enthrone his Messiah so that the, the remnant of the people may come to him. And third phase, and instead of even, it, it can be translated just and, and then even the Gentiles would be his name. Maybe there's actually three phases here. And that would match exactly with the book of Acts. Doesn't it start with the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father? There's his enthronement. Doesn't it then start with the gospel going out in Jerusalem to God's people? And what they've been seeing now is the third phase where the Gentiles are coming into God's people through faith in the Lord Jesus. I suggest that to you. Okay, and what you learn there is this has all been the Lord's plan. This is not an unusual thing. We should relax about this. We don't have to be stressed about this. This actually was God's plan all along. Well, Peter and James, with Paul and Barnabas' help, that is decisive, these contributions. And so now we can just read to the very end of the story. It all makes sense. Oh, no, I can't. What am I saying? I'm not up to that yet. Verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles to return to God. Oh, yes. Then we come to this little trouble bit. Verse 20. Instead, now, 
if you've been following this, what do you think he should say? We're in the new covenant, so we've got that. Right? God has purified their hearts. He's given them the spirit already. Logically, you just say, right, so that means you don't need to follow the Old Testament law. We've resolved the issue. Paul and Barnabas happen to be right this time. And therefore, you don't need to put on them the burden of the Old Testament, which is what he's basically said in verse 19. However, what he then goes on and say in verse 20, he said we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood, all of which are there in the Old Testament law. So was this a massive wuss-out moment? Theologically, they come to grips with the truth, and that was just too scary, so they said, well, let's just put some laws back in. Because, that was just too free. Too free and easy. <laughs> Is that what's going on here? I suggest to you, no, they are theologically consistent and very wise. Notice here, the key word, I think, is turning to God, which is there in verse 19. It's about Gentiles who are turning to God, and the first prohibition in verse 20 is food sacrifice to idols. That is, it's all about putting away the things that used to characterise your pagan idol worship. These Gentiles who are coming to belong to God's people, the thing they need to put off are all the things that mark them out in their pagan idol worship. And they, all the four things I mentioned were all about pagan idol worship. The food, the blood, and also the sexual immorality, because as part of pagan idol worship, there were temple prostitutes. And you'd go and have sex as part of your worship of various fertility deities. So all of these things were associated with pagan idol worship. And they're saying, well, you, you've got to put those things off. Right? So if it had been that pagan idol worship involved standing on one leg and clapping above your hands, I assume that they would have said, we don't want to put any barrier there, but by the way, don't stand on one leg and clap your hands above, because that's going to identify you as a pagan idol worshipper. And you should put that off. So first of all, put off the things associated with pagan idol worship. But secondly, the last verse of his, well, his speech, verse 21, for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And he's saying, as we proclaim Jesus in all these cities around the Mediterranean, around the known world at the time, there are already Jews in all these cities and they're already talking about the law of Moses and it's proclaimed in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So if we're going to be having good fellowship as Christians between Gentiles who come to faith and Jews who come to faith, there are certain things that are going to be problematic for Christian fellowship. And so if you if you can limit your freedom, your, your God-given freedom, on some of these matters, particularly about the food, then we, will have, we won't have the division. So in this way, I think he's saying very similar things to what we read in some of the other passages in the New Testament, like Romans 14 and 15, like 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul talks about how I'm free to eat food sacrificed to idols, but if it's going to cause a Christian brother to stumble because they've come out of a Jewish background and have particular sensibilities, I would prefer not to eat it. I limit my freedoms out of love. And so I think that's one of the principles that's going on here, and you're reflecting on that. Okay, I'm going to leave you to read through to the end. Basically what happens is this concludes the matter, so they write a letter to this effect, it goes to the church at Antioch and some of the surrounding churches, and it's greeted with great joy as great encouragement. So I want to say, why is this an encouraging thing? Because, friends, you have been purified as a Gentile. You stand pure and blameless and righteous before God, not because of any external observance. 
but by the great grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for you and the gift of God's spirit into your heart that God has actually cleansed your heart. And frankly, I don't care what sins you have done. Because God doesn't care what sins you have done if you have genuinely come to him in faith and repentance, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because he has cleansed you. That is the great truth of this passage. And that's the message we have to proclaim to all the nations, even here at Sydney Uni. That there is great grace and salvation and purification and righteousness before the one true living God through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of His Spirit. So be encouraged by that. See you next week.